Welcome, our fellow lovers of love, and thank you for joining us on yet another excursion through the stream of consciousness down the river of tranquility to fill the lake of life with love. And thank you, our friends of love, for joining us tonight. That's Lubby over there. I'm Jazz, and we are here tonight to talk about well, parental hypocrisy is a, probably a bit of a misnomer. I was in a hurry when I tried to name the night show, and I couldn't quite think of the exact term I was looking for, so I took something that came close. Because, you know, as a parent, we are often hypocrites, right? You know, if you if you drink and you smoke and you tell your teenager you shouldn't drink or smoke because it's bad for you, you know, bad for your long-term decisions and all the honest things that we tell our children, uh, you know, it's your flaming hypocrite, right? And, and of course you are, but you're a hypocrite based out of experience and knowledge that, you know, it leads you to this weird spot, you know, where, yeah, you, you smoke or you drink or you do things that you suggest your children shouldn't be doing. Right. You engage in behaviors that you suggest your children shouldn't do. And drinking or smoking are the obvious ones. Right. Take your pick of what you're smoking. Take your pick of what you're drinking. But, you know, whether it's too much soda and you tell your kids you can't have soda, or whether you drink too much coffee while you're restricting your kids from having caffeine, whatever it is. I mean, you can find yourself as a parent in these little, you know, bouts of hypocrisy. But it's not really hypocrisy in those situations. You're passing on hard-earned experience, right? It's not so much hypocrisy as you're trying to pass on hard-earned experience. And, or in my case, you tell your killed children that, you know, it's best to wait until you can make rational decisions about these things. And then, you know, life is hard enough. You know, engaging in these certain behaviors makes your life harder. And so... You know, I suggest that you don't, <laughs> that you refrain from it, at least until you're a responsible adult, and then you can behave, do it responsibly. And that's how I approached it. And, but that's still, that's someone who's smoked marijuana, you know, smokes marijuana, you know, daily. You know, that's a hard thing to tell, give your kids an anti-drug message, but they shouldn't. Even though I use marijuana largely, as self-medication for anxiety disorder, it's still, you know, a child sees that you're smoking pot and it's not always medication. And so how do you deal with that hypocrisy? <laughs> and, and so, you know, that's kind of a constant thing, parental hypocrisy. How do you deal with that? You know, what levels too much, how much is hypocrisy is too much. And at the same time, I'm kind of contemplating this for this week's show. Um, a friend, someone in my acquaintance circle, right? She, she complains about um, Gen Xers advocating for war, which is fair enough. It's, you know, then that particular demographic annoys her. Now, being a Gen Xer, you know, wait, I don't know many Gen Xers advocating for war. But as I'm going through this, I read an article about someone my age, a parent my age, who essentially chaperoned her now adult child on a spring break visit. I know. I read that article. It's worth a read. <laughs> and she is unapologetic. 
but and she's also aware of it and that's that makes it doubly worse if you kind of weren't aware of you kind of blindly bouncing around in your hypocrisy it, but she's proud of her hypocrisy and it's not just that what are we doing to our what have we done we complain about these young kids these days and how they, they don't take responsibility for themselves or they have no or they or they live in fear or all the various complaints but who raised them that way you're helicoptering your now adult child on a spring break while you're sitting there proud of yourself for going on your spring break all by yourself smoking and doing all the various things that you know we tell our children they shouldn't be doing because you know we've learned our hard lessons and it's just, it just boggles my mind. It's like, God, I hate my own generation. I want to throw them through the window. But, you know, I didn't raise my kids like that. So it's not a generation. It's just there's this goofy helicopter parent mindset. But you're not helping your kids. You're not actually keeping them safe. They're not ready for the world. Yeah, but if they're not ready for the world, whose fault is that? I know. That's what I mean. Get, that's your job is to make it uh, when you have a child, it's to make them into a fully functional adult. That's your job. It's to make it so you don't have to go down to Florida with them. When they're 18 out of high school and all that, you don't have to go on vacations with them to make sure they're safe because you've raised them properly to even when they're behaving in ways that you prefer they not, you do it responsibly. Like if you're going to go out on a night of drinking and drink too much, you use Ubers. You know, you don't drive yourself. Okay, I prefer you not go out and drinking too much, but hey, at least you're going to do it responsibly, right? There's, how are we supposed to learn these lessons if we don't ever allow them to practice? And the thing is, life isn't as dangerous as we think it is. You know, life was more dangerous back in the day when she was off running out and by herself. And it's not that, well, I was fine. That's not what this is. It's, this is, at some point, your goal as a parent is to raise your children to flee the nest. So you no longer have to raise them. And if you're literally refusing to let go of them, they can't even go on a week's vacation with their friends on spring break, which is something you dang well know what happens because you've gone there, which in a sense scares you, but you survived and you've raised them. So did you raise them right or did you not? And here's the thing. She thought she's a mile and a half away from their house, right? So she, from their thing. So they were like spying on them. But if something happened, they were close by. If something happened, you being close by wasn't going to do a damn thing. Being a mile and a half away might as well be 10 or 100 or 1,000. Right? There's nothing you can do unless you're going to what? Put them in the bubble and then walk around them and escort their bubble for the rest of their lives. When are you going to let them go? You know, there's an old saying, if you love something, you let it go. If it loves you, it comes back willingly. You don't have to hold on to it. The tighter you try to squeeze, 
you know, the more likely you are to let them go. It's like hold on, try to hold on to a fistful of sand. How do you do it? Do you hold on to it tight or do you loosely cup it? I think for a lot of women um, that do this, their identity is so wrapped up in being a mother. And as a mom, your, your role changes when they become adult children. And that's part of life. This is what's supposed to happen. That's healthy. Yeah, this is this is kind of the thing. This is supposed to happen. It's, it's, they're supposed to go off and explore the world and find their own boundaries and find out who they are. And they can't do that with you hovering over them. Or if they're looking for your approval or they're trying to figure ways to get out from under your nose. or It's just, you're not teaching them to be an adult is what you're doing. You're actually teaching them to continue to be a child longer. Accidentally. You're not doing it on purpose, right? Let's not fool anybody. It's not like you're deliberately trying to keep them, but that's the end result. Simply because they don't have a chance to practice being adults. You know, one of the things I always tried to do to my kids, successfully or not, was treat them a little older than they were. Yeah. It was good for their psyche. You know, it gave them something to live up to. Made them feel proud that they earned it. You know, they were practicing. They were continually practicing being older than they were. Eventually, it pays off. You know, it might be until they're 30, but, you know, eventually it pays off. <laughs> hey, my boys, man, they're immature. So, you know, you're older than they were. It's, it's Boys are crazy. They're all good kids. I digest, digest. But, you know, we all evolve at our own pace. There is no script. But you can hurt it. All right. So what do we got next? So, but by the way, and just to kind of wrap that up, don't go on spring break with your children. Let them go. And if you and if you say, well, I'm friends with my kid. I'm not going as a mother. I'm going as a friend. Don't go. Let them have their own friends. And if they don't have friends, they shouldn't be going on spring break. They should be spending time building their relationship skills. Okay. Three ways to be kind when you have no patience. You're going to have to back me up on this because I forget what the three ways were. I think one was build relationships, but that was the second one. Respect before anger. That's the one. Yeah. Which is essentially means that when you start to feel angry, understand that, you know, show as much respect as you would want shown. Do unto others. The golden rule. All that kind of magically still applies relationship building yeah unless you live in a very large city where you never see the same person twice you will likely have multiple encounters with the people you encounter well I mean, even if you don't you know maybe these the pe person you're upset with is someone you have to work with or someone who works in your industry, or Lord knows if you're in politics, you know, politics makes strange bedfellows. And so, but it's also about 
relationships. And so, you know, you might have to disagree with somebody on one issue where you can't find any common ground, but there's other issues where you can. And so do you want to burn your bridges on these other issues where you can work with or, or not? So, you know, build some respect. Make sure that if that relationship isn't tarnished by, you know, a, a short-term anger. You know, biting your tongue only hurts you. Speaking can hurt more than you. Yeah. Speaking in, in un, unconsidered word can actually cause pain and cause long-term relationship damage. And it should be avoided. Okay. What's the third third one? Honey beets vinegar. Yes. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Well, purely selfishly. Just out of pure selfishness. You're more likely to get what you want if, if you're nice and kind and smile and try to help the person's way through. I mean, it's, it's not altruistic. It's Think of it as a strategy to get what you want. It's a better strategy than not. It just is. Yeah, nine times out of ten, being nice is going to work far better than not. And that tenth time it worked, okay, it may work that one time, but now what you've done for the future? You've hurt your relationship in the future. So, you know, you may get what you want short term, but do you get what you want long term as well? So I just, you know, always consider the various long-term consequences, shall we say, of your uh, of your words and deeds and attitudes. Okay. I like this one. If the only kindness you can find is to not shout and scream, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, What's so, important is you consciously think of positive ways to redirect your frustration and anger. Yeah, and as a trick for me, one of the things is frustration and anger can sometimes be confused. Sometimes you can feel angry when you're really frustrated. And so becoming in touch with yourself and what your real feelings are is actually important in dealing with other people. Okay, so three life skills. Social anxiety impairs and to it strengthens. So let's go through this one because I can, I'm a, we can tell if this one's true or not, even though I actually knew it's a pretty good list. So what do you got? I lost our page. I lost our homepage. You lost our homepage. Type in late night love. You know, it's, it's a website. You just, <laughs> just like any other. Sorry, technical difficulties over here. I, mean, I could go it on mine, but I can't read it on, on my screen. So Got it. Okay, I'm back. Okay, we're talking about three, three life skills, social anxiety impairs, and yeah. two, it strengthens. Yeah. So the problem is I can't read the the highlights on my screen on my screen yet. So gotcha. Social anxiety decreases social skills. Yes. 
because it messes with your communication and social skills. Well, it's because you're misinterpreting the world. You're in fight or flight mode while the rest of the world is in, is in relaxed party mode. And so you're simply interpreting the world wrong. You know, in often cases, you're misinterpreting. Right? You're, you're all anxious while everybody else is calm and relaxed. Right? You think everybody is, is staring at you and judging you or thinking bad about you when they're really just watching you. You know, like they would anybody else, <laughs> you know, it's you're living in your head while everybody else is living a completely different existence. <laughs> but that's, you know, if it made sense, it wouldn't be called a disorder. I keep, I'll say that till the day I die. It's, you know, you're just interpreting the world differently. And so because of that, it leads you to two things. One, you're reacting wrong because, you know, this, you're missing the signals. And so you're anxious when other people are, are not. But secondly is when you become aware of that, you try to become somebody you're not. So you're trying to continually adjust who you are to fit in rather than just be yourself, which is the best way to fit in. <laughs> the best way to fit in is to just be who you are and be yourself and be genuine. But if you're a, you know, if you're in fight or flight mode, if you're in social anxiety, you know, you're always trying to be somebody you're not. Not out of, not out of, you know, any sense of manipulation or anything like that is just, that's what you think you need to do. And again, because you're misinterpreting the world. So yeah, that's a very, very true. That's why they're socially awkward. So people with anxiety are socially awkward. They generally have a very small group of friends who understand them, let them be weird, <laughs> you know, accept their, their weirdness. I'm guilty. And yeah. I've always been like that. Yeah. Because once you find a handful of people who accept that kind of strangest about you, it's relaxing. And then you can genuinely be who you are. And then you end up not being so weird. It's, <laughs> it's, it's just the way it is. <laughs> You end up just being like everybody else because you can be yourself. So, right. so what's the next okay. one? Okay, decision making is impaired by social anxiety. Yeah, again, because you're misinterpreting the world, and so your 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 uh, solutions to situations are wrong. It, so you know you come up with wrong solutions. And it's sad fact of life. Yeah. Okay. Social anxiety decreases resili resilience. Anxiety also reduces your ability to cope with stress and adversity. Studies demonstrate a negative correlation between social anxiety and resistance. Well, it anxious people are often told they're overly sensitive and make a mountain out of a molehill. Well, they are all sensitive because, again, they're living in flight or flight mode. And so everything is, is interpreted. Is this dangerous? Do I need to run or do I need to fight? And that's a terrible way to live. And not only is it bad for your interpretations of the world, it's bad for your health because you're always under stress. Imagine living constantly under fear, continually, with and the you know, adrenaline hits, hits and ups and downs, ups and downs of adrenaline. You know? It's it's a uh, it's not a good way to live, and no one wants to be that way. And again, when you say, "Well, the reactions don't make sense," yeah, that's why it's called a disorder. <laughs> I'm gonna say that about a hundred times. <laughs> when you talk about anxiety, 
if it doesn't make sense, yeah, you're right. It doesn't make sense. We know it doesn't make sense. But it is the way it is. Yeah. If it made sense, everybody could understand it. So, anyway, what are we next? Okay, two positives. Social anxiety increases awareness. Most people who struggle with anxiety know it makes you overly self-aware. Well, it's not just self-aware, which dealing with it, you have to become better self-aware to become good with it. But you become good at reading a room. Once you learn how to, once you understand that you have anxiety, then you, you become good at understanding the room. So it's, it's a strange thing. When you don't know you have an anxiety disorder, you can't read a room. You can't read people for nothing. Once you understand it and you can start interpreting what other people are being, you become very empathetic because you can see the struggles other people are going through. You can see why people are acting the way they are. You can understand it. Because you live it. And if you haven't lived it, your brain has written us about 30 scripts in that, you know, what happens if? And so you empathize. You can almost instantaneously empathize because you've had a script in your head that's similar to somebody else's experience. And so it's easier for you to, to walk into the... It's easier for you to shift into being empathetic and empathy leads to understanding and the willingness to open your mind and hear what other people are going through because you know you know how life is not unique i mean life is unique everybody's journey is unique everybody's story whether you can have a similar story how that manifests inside of you and then out of you is vastly different you know we can all have the exact same experience me and my sister raised in the same house, same parents, same generic experience. We're vastly different people. You know, there's nothing wrong with one or the other. It just is. And, you know, as once you become aware of your anxiety disorders, you become more empathetic to that. And that makes you understand, you know, more aware. Okay, what's the last one? Empathy increases with social anxiety. You just covered that. Yeah, because they're related. It's it's not those two things. <laughs> just had a drink with his. Hey, Tim. We were talking about Tim says he just had a drink with his son at dinner tonight, but he's an adult. <laughs> so thank you, Tim. Yeah, you know. It's weird to have to sit there and, and, you know, I guess drinking is so common. Having a drink with your dad or your parents is weird. You know, being a pothead, I've never sat around and had smoked pot with my kids because my kids don't smoke pot somehow. Um, <laughs> at least not a lot. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. I don't know how that happened either. Well, okay. It, my biological children don't smoke pot. My acquired children do, oddly enough. <laughs> Just saying. No, that's not true because my oldest does. Anyway, but that, anyway, that's 
near here than there. You know, it's just strange how how that culture is going to change in the next 10, 20 years. We'll see what the change comes. If it's more using marijuana, products are more common around, you know, we'll be treated more like alcohol. Like having a, having a joint with your dad is going to be like having a beer with your dad. It, it, it's an interesting discussion. Yeah. We'll see how it goes. That's how it was. Well, I don't drink, so that's how it was with my girls. <laughs> and I don't drink either, but, you know, it is what it is. All right. Oh, so, all right. So what else we got? How TD can be a trauma recovery tool. Now, I like the example he gave. If you're trying to recover... And from um, a toxic family, how do you know what a supportive family looks like? And uh, there's a lot of good sitcoms on that, that are. Well, oddly enough, you can make an argument that the sitcoms of the 70s and early 80s, all those family friendly, you know, sitcoms were actually designed to do just that. They were designed to show people how a functional family looks like. Because if you remember in the 70s, divorce rates were what? Higher than they are now. They're at 50, over 50%. There were the single family homes, the latchkey kids. You know, people didn't know what a functional family looked like. And so when you get the Cosby shows or Silver Spoons or, you know, and a lot of them, they weren't, you know, families. The Brady Bunch, these were mixed families. Families of divorce and coming back together, you know, broken families coming back together and healing. And just most of those shows in the 70s, even Happy Days, right? You can think of the Fonz. He was the outsider who found a family. These uh, shows of the 70s, that's what they did in the early 80s. And then you got to shows like Married with Children, who kind of showed a more, you know, a realistic but unrealistic version of families. <laughs> you know, it's kind of the non-functional family, but that they generally loved each other. They would argue and fight, but despite all of his attempts, Al never actually cheated on Peg. He had, not even never attempted. He had opportunities, but never did it. Right? Despite the fact that he used to complain <laughs> about Peg's wanting affection, but you know, and he used to ogle attractive women all the time. But yet, when the chances came, he always said no. Because as much as they would argue and bitter and fight, they loved each other. So even that, a dysfunctional family, they showed that a dysfunctional family can still love each other and they can still honor each other. You know, a lot of people complain about those sitcoms. But, you know, they, have, they served a purpose. They really did. They served a purpose. And I think society has a lot to be thankful for for those. Even in their imperfections, even in their goofy anti-drug messages that backfired. <laughs> you know, they did a lot. They showed that you can integrate families. They showed that families can come together and be functional. They showed that, you know, dysfunctional families can still love each other and pull through and pull together when needed even without overtly sending that message. Well, it's great art and it's uh, misunderstood to say the least.
Okay. Anything else? But you do. You like the other part of it is you can find something that is comforting. Right? Something that you know. If you have anxiety disorders and you just want to, all you want to do is sit down and relax and you don't want to be excited. You don't want it to be, you just turn on something that you know. I watch Red Green or Top Gear when that kind of thing is. When I'm in that kind of a mood, you know, you have yours. I call them cry movies and I joke about it, but I know what you use them for. <laughs> it's, you know, they're period dramas, mostly Jane Austen book based. They're classic pieces of art. I don't understand why you don't appreciate them. Because, because there's three stages of these movies. Right? There's three stages of the movies. There's before the crying, there's the crying, and then there's the after the crying. And then it goes to the before the crying, and then the crying, and then the after the crying. That's the three stages of the movies. I I get it. Women like these things. Fine, you know. Guys like wrestling. You know, it's it's the same thing but different. It, it literally is. It's a stunt show with reasons for being a stunt show, with goofy reasons for being a stunt show. And, you know, your period dramas, they're a goofy reasons to dress up in goofy clothes and and act like women from the older days. Oh, I've got the vapors. Someone come rescue me. <laughs> I'm telling you, we lost something when we gave up fainting. <laughs> but I get it, right? You like the kind of drama of the boys like kind of physical drama, their girls like the emotional drama, and so you've got cry movies and wrestling. That's you know, it's that's kind of the extremes, right? <laughs> boys are physical, girls are emotional, and so yeah, I get it. It's it feeds you what you need. You need your break tonight, or you we hanging through? Yeah, I'm gonna take a break. You want to read the basic personal rights? What basic personal right? Ooh. Is self-care selfish? Is self-care selfish? Yeah, I'll talk about it. Well, I was going to go to questions because I... Is self-care right. selfish? I don't know. Well, because I accidentally closed my browser, so... <laughs> I just got, I'm having troubles here. We're having troubles with our browsers tonight over here. Uh, what the heck? All right, so self, well, no, self-care is never selfish. I mean, good Lord, if you're not allowed to take care of yourself, if you're not allowed to spend some time on yourself, if you're not allowed to take care of your, let me put it this way. If you break your arm and you get it in the cast and you take the six weeks to get it healed and then you go to the rehab, is that being selfish? You know, is it being selfish to give your body time to heal after a trauma, say after a car accident? And, you know, you're just not right for a few months. Is that being selfish to tell us, no, I can't help you move because I'm sore from the car accident. Is that being selfish? Just because we can't see what is not working properly doesn't mean it's selfish to take care of it properly. It's actually more important. You know, I can't see my liver, but yet I know I need to take care of that. And this is, so it's never selfish to engage in self-care. 
It's selfish for other people to ask you to not care for yourself and help them. That's what's selfish. Well, it's a very loving act, really, because you don't, you can't have enough to give if your cup, cup is empty. Yeah, well, and especially if you have things like we've talked about anxiety a lot, you know, if you don't care for yourself, you will break down physically, not just mentally, you will physically break down as well. And so self-care is just care. It's no different than exercise. It's no different than taking care of a broken bone. It's no different than getting cancer treatment. It's no different than anything else. <laughs> it's no different than me taking my stupid pill every day so my liver doesn't kill me. It's, <laughs> you know, is that being selfish? So just because it's a mental issue doesn't mean it's selfish to take care of it. It's absurd. And the fact that we even ask these kind of questions is a sign of, I don't know, sign of something. But anyway, you can go to latenightlove.us and you can find links to all the articles that we use to uh, discuss our topics. And you can find, oh, I didn't post it, but you will be able to find links to our newsletter. You can go join and sign up for our newsletter, which at the moment really just gives you links to all of this stuff. So if you don't have to catch it live, you can catch it in your email inbox. And you can find us on Facebook at The Late Night Love. You can find us at latenightlove.us. You can find us on social media networks and your favorite podcast service. <sighs> okay, all that is done. And you can send Lovey a dear love letter, dear lovey letter at love at latenightlove.us. I'd love to hear from you. And you can find me on Twitter at jazzrat. I should actually just change that or something. I don't know. I'm Got to find something to do with that. All right. So, tonight's set of questions. What do we got, Lovey? What is something you will never understand? I try to wrap my head around the concept of time, and it eludes me every time. I just start feeling my brain starting to wrap around it, and it slips away. That's because time doesn't exist. Once you accept that, then it makes sense. But anyway, time is an invention of man. It doesn't exist in nature. And so, therefore, that's why we can't understand it. And it's quite simple. Something we as human measure, it doesn't exist by itself. But anyway, that's a whole another thing. What will I don't understand? There's lots of things I won't understand, frankly. I don't understand people's proneness to violence. I don't understand why we don't accept the fact that people experience food differently. I don't understand why people don't accept that, you know, the broad sexual spectrum is no different than the broad personality spectrum and all these things interact in a different way. Eh, you know, I'll never understand why we just don't accept that the diversity of people, thought, and desires is, is more diverse than we can imagine, ultimately. That's so there. If you want to get all metaphysical or whatever the hell word I'm looking for. <laughs> I don't think that's the right word, but whatever. All right, what's next? How can I be happy alone? 
Well, oddly enough, you can never be happy until you're happy alone. I love my own company. Yeah, well, you if you're looking for somebody else or something else to make you happy, you're never going to be happy. Happiness comes from within. And so actually learning to be happy with yourself is the key to being happy. You have to learn to be happy with who you are. And if you're not happy with who you are, then start making changes to become happy with who you are. And then you will be happy alone. There's no steps. There's no 10-step program that we can give you. You know, this is time in the mirror. You have to design this this path on your own. What are you unhappy about? What is it about you? It's not an easy question. Pick the easy stuff to start with. That's my suggestion. Find out what you don't like about yourself. Find the easiest thing to change and start there. And once you start having a few successes, hey, if it's, hey, I only brush my teeth twice a week. I want to do it five times a week. Great. Now five times is better than two. So great. <laughs> maybe next month you can go to 10 times a week. Then maybe next month you can go to twice a day. Right? That's a success. And then as you build on those successes, you'll start to become happy with yourself because you will starting to become the person you want to be rather than sitting where you are. And that's the way to do it. Or it's the way to start. Okay. What you got? My mother is having a financial problem and she wants to sell our house. I can't imagine why she would do that. I don't know how to stop her. What should I do? Well, I'm assuming nothing. Your mother's having a financial problem and a financial problem needs to be solved. If she can't afford the house you're living in, unless you're in some position to help her afford it, Right? Unless you can be paying rent, and I'm suspecting that you're younger than, than that. You're still in high school, just because of the way it's phrased. There's nothing you can do, and there's nothing you should do. You know, moving is part of life. It's terrible. It's, it's painful, but, you know, it's not always bad. Because depending on where you are, you know, she might be able to sell her house, move to someplace much cheaper, and completely change the lifestyle she's living. Remove all kinds of stress. You know, she's living in, say, the Bay Area of California and can barely afford rent, and then all of a sudden goes, moves to, I don't know, Lincoln, Nebraska, where it's much cheaper. You can buy a bigger house for a third of the, for, you know, a third or less of the cost, <laughs> go to nicer schools. And she's working, able to work remotely, so her, so her lifestyle will increase, will improve. Your lifestyle will improve. You know, it's a no-brainer. If you're worried about it, you can talk to her about it. But, you know, don't try to change your mind. Just try to understand it. And help you become comfortable with it. Because my, my guess is, you know, there's nothing you can do. She's doing it because she has to, not necessarily because she wants to. Okay, what we got? How do Toyota cars last 300,000 miles? Um, because you properly maintain them. And it's not just Toyotas. Any car, 
will last 300,000 miles or more if you maintain them properly. It's the willingness to put in the maintenance. That's really all it is. You know, maintenance is not sexy, nor and sometimes it's expensive. But if you want your car to last 300,000 miles, you have to replace things like, you know, how many times you have to do the brakes after 300,000 miles? You probably need transmission service at least once in that. You know, a new radiator. You know, all these things have to be replaced. A couple batteries. Yeah, you know, there's. it's not like they just last without maintenance. <laughs> you know, so you have to be willing to actually put in the, the time and money to fix it. And you missed a question, by the way. I'm 32 and I don't have a career. I don't know what I want to do for the rest of my life. This has been causing me grief. How do I find my career path? But without a recommendation, I recommend you go, you look up, um, what was it called? Future authoring program. No, maybe it's not the future authoring program. Yeah, start there. And you go, you kind of start to design your future. Just search for the future authoring program. Um, but really, it's the, the career is not necessarily a thing. Most people don't have a career. Most people have jobs. Okay. So the fact that you don't have a career isn't necessarily the problem. As long as you have your direction elsewhere, right? A lot of people work a job so they can have their direction, right? Outside of that job. You know, that's why you have these people with these real intense hobbies. You know, you build four wheelers or whatever. You spend just as much time on their hobby as they do at work because their job isn't necessarily a career. It's a job. It's a way to fund the things that you really want to do. Because the things you really want to do don't pay their money. <laughs> so they have to do it the other way around. You know, so not having a career isn't necessarily the problem. It's not having a direction, not having meaning. That's the problem. And so, so find some meaning in your life. And then, then you will have direction. And then what you do to earn money is a different question. It's what you're doing to earn money. It's not necessarily what your career is. Now, maybe it's a career. You know, maybe, maybe you do. Maybe, and maybe you find your career while searching for that. I don't know. But, you know, start with a search for meaning. Because that's what's going to make you fulfilled and satisfied. Okay. I told my boss that I'm going to resign and he fired me on the spot. Can he legally do that as I resigned first? It doesn't actually make a difference. <laughs> um, I mean, it may make a difference if you need unemployment. You probably, if you want, need unemployment, you actually probably want to be fired in that kind of situation because it's probably, you know, not fired with cause and all that kind of thing. You know, but if you've already got another job, what do you care? It doesn't matter. It's one of those things that's not relevant. I quit. You're fired. doesn't matter. You no longer work there. That's the only point. Now, a lot of companies, well, you know, you'll put in like a regulation and you need to work your two weeks. And a lot of places don't want you working there those two weeks. You got short timers disease. Maybe you're a disgruntled employee. They just don't want to take the risk. So off you go. You know, if it's a good place, they'll pay you for part, you know, all at two weeks or some of it or not. And if they're not, they won't. But 
you're leaving. So what do you care? I've, this is one of these things I never understood. You're walking out the door and you're going to be mad because they told you to walk out the door. <laughs> don't get it. Yeah, you were leaving. There's reasons you were leaving. This is why. It's now in your rearview mirror. That's, that's all I got to say about that. Just don't spend time on it. Okay, what do you got? Why are mothers expected to take care of their newborns right after giving birth? Shouldn't they be given more time in the hospital to heal? Well, because the baby needs taken care of. If you've had a really rough time, you get more time in the hospital. But if it's a normal birth, there's no reason why you can't go home as long as you have support at home. No, no, no. I, I get it that you want to make sure that there's nothing medically wrong. And so you want to be careful because, you know, the birth death rate used to be outrageous and, and now it's not. And so, okay, you want to be very careful. But at the same time, you don't want to... Hospitals are not places for healthy people to want to be in. <laughs> you want to spend as least amount of time in a hospital as possible. You just do. Now, if you need it, you need it. Great. But if you're healthy, get you and that baby out the hospital. You know why? Because sick people are in hospitals. There's diseases and germs and all kinds of stuff. And no matter how careful they're going to be, there's still sick people in hospital. And you just don't want to spend the time in there. And we could argue that, you know, humans have been giving birth and, you know, there's the old saying that you used to give birth out in the rice fields while they're picking rice and then just put the baby on the back. And it's a little bit hypocritical, but it's also a little bit true. You know, life is brutal back in the day. We have comforts, but that baby needs you. And, you know, motherhood starts before that baby is born. Yes, it does. And there's no days off. <laughs> there's no days off in parenthood. So, you know. Nope. It's a constant state of worry. Even when they're grown, it never ends. As we found out in the first subject. <laughs> Some of us worry more than others. All right. So where do we get this? How do you keep your feelings in check in a casual relationship? You don't. You can't. Good luck. I never was able to. Well, if it's a genuinely casual relationship, you won't have feelings. Right? They just won't develop because that's not what that person's there for. Yeah. But if there's any type of actual genuine relationship there, you will have one. You just will. That's why people only have, you know, one night stands or maybe twice. They don't, why they don't spend more than a couple of times with one person because they well-developed feelings and they know it. It's a sad life to live, frankly, but you know, you're allowed to live a sad life or what other people feel sad. Maybe it fulfills you. I don't know. Most of us need, need solid relationships to have a fulfilling life, but diversity of humankind there i'm sure there's a few people out there who can be fulfilled without it i just can't imagine it but the question is do you want to do you want to go through life without feeling 
didn't you ever have a period in your life where you did casual relationships? <laughs> no, not really. We've had a couple, but not casual relationships. No, never have time. Never have much time. But I also don't want them, so it's not what I was looking for. No. All right. Well, some of us had to learn in that the hard way. Well, some of us are looking for different things. What if you regret a life choice you made? Well, you forgive yourself and you move on. Learn from it and move on. That's all you can do. Really. Find a way to forgive yourself. If you have to make amends to somebody, you can make amends to somebody. You know, you can deal with that. But realistically, it's there's nothing you can do. You can't go back in time and change it. So you learn from it. You forgive yourself for being stupid and you move on you go forward. What else are you going to do? You're going to flog yourself. You're going to punish yourself for the rest of your life over it. Is that going to help? I don't think so. Okay. What if you're angry at your adult child? Man. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I suppose it depends on what, but you've got to figure out, is it worth it? It's gen generally not worth it. I usually keep my thoughts to myself. But, you know, it's, you know, it becomes a, you know, pick your battles. You know, are you angry? You're frustrated. Why are you angry? Because they're doing, are they doing something you, you think they shouldn't be doing? Or are they, you know, robbing banks? You know, what are they doing? Are they like this first person? Maybe the child been on, maybe your child went on a big spring break vacation and told you to kick rocks and not come. And then you're mad. <laughs> or, you know, or have the, actually done something that's a genuine moral ethical problem that's i mean you have to first decide that so if you're angry at your adult child you have to first find out why look yourself in the mirror and find out why and is it reasonable because you might not be the reasonable one here matter of fact you likely might you aren't the reasonable one maybe you haven't let him go Maybe you're still treating them as a child instead of an adult. And that's why you're angry. Because as an adult, child, disappointed maybe. But I'm not sure how much anger you can be unless they've done something outrageous. So That's my suggestion. If you're angry, find out why and go from there. How do you deal with a stubborn partner? I don't know. So, how do you deal with a stubborn partner, Lovey? A lot of patience, <laughs> acceptance. This is when we have to ask you. <laughs> I'm pretty stubborn myself. Yeah, not really. You're not stubborn. 
I'm a Taurus. I'm notorious. In the scheme of what I've had to put up with, you're not stubborn. Oh, well, thank you. I'm just saying. Now, this piece of meat here is a stubborn bullhead. So You're pretty easy. But I am pretty stubborn. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a pretty knuckleheaded. Especially when it comes to seeing doctors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. There you go again. Never leave me alone on that one. <laughs> See, that is a story. What do you do? I'm allowed to say something. I have had to wait sometimes years for you to see a doctor about a medical problem. I have watched you go down to the very depths before you will say, wave the right fl white flag. Like I said. And I say nothing. Patience, understanding, compassion, empathy. And love is really what you do with a stubborn partner because they're not going to really change. They can, you know, soften a little bit, but they're not going to change. It's in their nature. You know, they're always going to have that. You know, they may pick less things to be stubborn about, but they're always going to be stubborn on a thing or two. They will pick their hill and heel, hill, heel. They will pick their hill and die on it. Trust me. Well, almost die on it. Shall I say? I know that from experience. How do you overcome fear? Well, not really. You don't overcome it. You become stronger in the face of it. That's the simple truth. Now, whether it's exposure therapy, or whether it's understanding it, you know, and just pounding your way through it, there's uh, different techniques, and you have to pick the one that works for you on any given situation. But you don't become, you don't overcome it. You just become stronger in the face of it. It's a different thing. You, like, I still hate putting eye drops in my eyes, what, two weeks later? You know, I do it. I still hate it. You're doing it yourself now. <laughs> yeah, I know. Still hate it. But, you know, stronger in the face of that irrational fear. Parts of it, I know it's an irrational fear. And so it's, but I guess I was about to say it's easier, but it's so I can understand it. So it's stronger at going through it. So it's a different thing. It's not easier. I'm just better at it. Is the other way. Yeah. You just get better at it. Okay. What makes a present special? The thoughts behind it. The meaning. The fact that someone cared. You know, I'm not one who actually needs presents. You know, so it's not... I get what I need from the people I need it from continually throughout, you know, time. So, you know, presents... I'm not going to say are meaningless because that's not true. They mean a lot, but I don't need them to have the meaning. You know what I mean? The meaning of what? The, what, what the presents mean. I don't oh. need the actual, pre I don't need a physical present to have the feeling. I understand. So, 
That's all. I like flowers. But it's it's the fact that someone was thinking about you. Is the well, yeah. When you you when you have a couple do- extra dollars and you're in line at the grocery store, I know you were thinking of me. Yeah, it's just that's the that's the thing that someone was thinking of you. All right. How do you approach changing habits? Well, that's an interesting one because for me, I change habits. It seems like I change it all at once, but really I spend a lot of time contemplating. And then I, uh, whoa, that's right. I can't do that. This is not a real table. (laughs) I have a lot of time contemplating before I make, before something kind of pushes that equation to action. And it's, I'm not entirely sure when that is because it's not a plan. You know, it's just, you know, think about it for a while. And then sometimes I take advantage of an opportunity. So an opportunity like, well, I haven't, I haven't had the opportunity to have a, you know, I was in the hospital, so I didn't drink much soda for, you know, a week or so. So I just didn't start up again. Right. It was just, it's easier that way. But at the same time, I had been thinking about, you know, drinking so much soda is not good for my health. I'm going to have to stop and change my habit at some point. I've been thinking about that for months, been contemplating it. You know, some people would call it visualization techniques, visualization techniques, you know, but I don't visualize things. I speak so it works different. You know, it's the same function, but it looks differently in my head than it does in most people. But visualize yourself changing your habit. And then when you're ready to change your habit, it's easier to actually change the habit. So I do it. Mm-hmm. So, because I'm bad about the discipline to do it by force. Okay. You missed one. How do you know you are a success? Well, you get to define success. That's how you know. No one else gets to define success for you. You get to define success for you. Success <laughs> is your definition. I don't get to define success. She doesn't get to define success. The world doesn't get to define success. At the end of the at the end of your life, when you you know cross to the golden arches or, or the, the, the golden gates, the golden gates, or, golden arches. That's McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, I know it's late. It's been a long day. <laughs> but when you cross the the you know the golden threshold, whatever it is you want to you want to pass, you know you define is, is life a success. No one else does. There's no one, you know, you, maybe your God gets to be the judge of your life, right? That's it. No one else judges. And so if you're a success, you know it. You know, if you've become the person you want to be, you don't need outside approval. When you get to that, that's when you're a success. All right, we've got, we've got room for two more. What's the best way to comfort someone who is upset? Listening. Yep. Shut up and listen. Just be there. Shut up and listen. They'll tell you if they need to hear something. Do well. And if you're not sure, you can ask. Say, do you need me 
do you need a solution or do you need me just to listen? And they'll tell you. But frankly, just listen. And then you get to, if there's a pause in the conversation, you say, do you need a response or do you need me just to listen? You know, be there for them, not for you. You do great with that. You've asked me, I don't know what to do right now. What do you need from me? <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, I don't know. <laughs> do you need to be alone? Do you need me to hang out with you? Yeah, sometimes I get mixed signals. Okay, which one? Do I get? So I just ask. <laughs> I'm getting some mixed signals here, woman. I, you know, but now, of course, you ask much kinder than that. You, know, you don't go, I'm getting mixed signals here, woman. I need you to tell me what you want. <laughs> No, you, you approach it a little kinder than that, right? <laughs> Say, I don't know what to do here, lovey. Um, what do you need from me? Yeah, and that's what you do. So, you know, just listen. Is the nine times out of ten just listening, having a compassionate ear, genuinely wanting to be there and listen to them is, you know, all you take. Okay, last question. Is it normal to talk to yourself? God, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> I, have, I have long, drawn-out conversations with myself. I find myself highly entertaining. Hey, let's think. If I sit here and listen to myself talk here, just think of how much I listen to myself talk everywhere else. I love listening to myself talk. But also, part of the anxiety disorder and the way through it is through essentially self-talk you you walk you continually walking yourself through everything that's what i do because you know you have to make sure you're not misinterpreting the world no that's a misinterpretation you know are you sure about that <laughs> you know it's a continual dialogue and sometimes you're working through things and it works as a dialogue in your head there's nothing wrong with that as long as you're talking to yourself, you know, there's not other personalities in there. You're not talking, talking to Joe and Sally and Bob. That's great. As long as, it's, as, long as it's you. <laughs> right. Sometimes it feels like a, the subconscious can feel like a separate voice, but it's not. Yes. It, 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 because it's, it's a counter voice, Right. It's someone like arguing with yourself. It's like you've got that arguing with yourself in there. And so it can feel like there's a second person in there, but it's you. But you know it's you. It doesn't have a person that, it doesn't have another name. It doesn't have another personality. It's it's you. It's just that yin and yang of you trying to figure out this complicated subject or this complicated situation. And so you're kind of working it out in your brain, you know, like playing ping pong with your yin and yang rather than. Bob, Sally, and George all sitting there giving their two cents in. That's not the same thing as talking to yourself. <laughs> That's a different kind of talking to yourself. And good Lord, get professional help if you've got more than you in there. Because you need it. Yes, indeed. I mean, it's not, you know, you're not less of a human being, but you need help dealing with that. Because it will get you eventually. So anyway, for me and Lubby, I want to thank you for joining us 
tonight. We, you can find us at late night love.us. You can send Bobby a, a letter at love at late night love.us. You can find me at Jazzwreck. You can find us on all your favorite social media networks and your podcast services. So for me, Lovey, good night and love every night.